Hi, this is Kalia. And this is Chris. And this is It's, it's a, a Queer, queer thing. thing. On this show, we focus on politics, civil rights, news, and entertainment. And on this show, we have special guests and interviews focusing on issues relevant to the LGBTQ plus community. So let's get to it. Hey, Chris. Hey, Kalia. Happy Pride. <laughs> okay. You haven't started recording yet. I have, actually. Oh, you have. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, let me ask you this. So I know you're a summer girl, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. You love, you love summer. You hate rain. Yes. The fair. summer is your time of the year where you prefer everything to be summer-like, right? Yes, warm and sunny and warm. Warm and sunny, yeah. But warm to you doesn't mean 100 degrees because, um, you know, you live in Fresno. So warm here is like 105. Yeah, I, I like it in the 90s. I'm pretty happy in the mm-hmm. 90s. That never yeah. happens and you know it. So I'm just excited that we're in September now. Yes. And that basically means, basically, we've oh. got one one more month of this weather. What? I, I know where this is going. Where is this going? You are one of those people who likes Halloween, and you're all about the spooky stuff. Have you started decorating, Chris? I have not. I have not. <laughs> I never, ever decorate for Halloween before October 1st. I never decorate for Christmas be- before December 1st. And actually, I'll be later this year because we're going away October 4th and 5th to see Pink and Pat Benatar in L.A. and go to Disneyland for Halloween. And then when I come back that weekend, I'll decorate. But the more important thing is I have not purchased any new Halloween decorations this year. And that's really, really hard because there are several pieces in my Martha Stewart Grandin Road shopping cart, but I have not pulled the trigger yet. And I'm hoping I don't. Okay. So here's the new watch. This is this, you can play the home game listener. So it's (laughs) September 1st and he hasn't bought any new Halloween decorations. We have an episode that's going to come out on September 8th. You can li- take your bets now on what. Okay, or not- I'll, I'll give you progressive uh, yes. updates. Yeah. Yes, I'm very curious. I will decorate for uh, Chris. I don't really do much in the way of Halloween. I will do some fall stuff in September, and I'll do. Yeah, I mean, I I don't love this time at this coming time of year because of Halloween. Although I love Halloween, I love it because I despise hot, sunny weather. Mm-hmm. I always have. I don't mind the spring. I love the spring. That's my second favorite season. But fall is way up there on my top season that I love. And that's because I find dark days and cloudy days and rain and thunder and all that. I find that so much more interesting than sunshine. Why do you, why do you find sunshine more interesting? It's very practical. If it's warm, I put on shorts and sandals and a tank top and I'm fine. If I, if my chain, my temperature changes a little bit, I if it changes to that I'm warm, I drink something cold and sit in front of a fan for a couple of minutes. If it changes until that I'm a little bit cool because now I'm in front of the fan, I move away from the fan or I put on a light hoodie. It's very easy to adapt. In the wintertime, I get cold and it is really hard for me personally to warm back up after I've gotten cold. I can regulate my temperature so much easier in the summer months. Also, when it's cold, 
and you walk four miles a day like I do, you get hot and sweaty in your layers, but you have to layer because it's cold. And then there's rain and people drive like idiots in the rain. And then it's hard to see. (laughs) And then, I mean, it just, and then you get splashed and then your boots that are supposed to be waterproof aren't always waterproof. Also, I have to wear jeans instead of shorts. And I have big muscles on the on the backs of my legs and so i you can't mean your wear... calves <laughs> well not my thighs too but oh, yeah definitely calves, my calves yeah. i have a lot of muscle definition which means i have to buy these baggy ass jeans to fit over my legs but then they fall off of my waist so then i'm cinching things with belts they just it's when i get to wear shorts all i have to worry about is the waist because then there's there's no legs there right and i just get to be my legs i i like I like sitting outside in the sunshine and feeling the sun on my skin. I don't like dealing with the rain. Yeah. But again, I, the sunshine in Fresno is 100 degrees, not 75. So it's different yeah, than but, if you lived in like Monterey or somewhere. Oh, that had for the, sure. And I used to live in Santa Cruz. And I was cold all the damn time. So Even in the summer, <laughs> huh? Yeah. Oh, the June gloom is a very real thing <laughs> off the coast. What does it? What's the temperature there in the middle of June or July? It can sometimes it's only in the 70s. And the oh. same thing with like in September. I had a friend who was going to get married in September in Monterey. And I was like, it's going to be cloudy and like foggy and cold. And she's like, no, it's not. And it was. It was fucking foggy. And it rained on her wedding on the beach because it was September in, in Monterey. That's what it was. Now, beautiful weather in Santa Cruz. If you go after Christmas, like at the end of December, it'll be in the 70s at low 80s. And you will feel like you just... Yeah, it's weird in California. Whatever's happening in Fresno tends to be the opposite of what's happening on the coast. So in Fresno, in the middle of winter where we're foggy and cold, the coast is beautiful. Yeah, that's true. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I didn't know you felt quite that passionate about (laughs) about winter and summer, but um, I'm just looking forward to it. I like the colors of fall. I like the food of fall. I like the holidays of fall. I like um, the only thing I don't like about fall, and this has been true my whole life, is that more people die in the fall. All the well, I hate to bring the room down, but it's true. I, 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 I don't. Like, oh, oh! As soon as he finishes talking, I'm going to talk about getting in the pool and how happy that makes me. And he's like, <laughs> well, people that, die. <laughs> people die in the fall. They do. I mean, more most so of the than people. Winter time. Oh I would yeah. Think. Well, fall, winter, right in there. But oh. mostly right around people in my life that are important to me that have died is it's like October, oh, November. Okay. Okay. And I, then I, you know, my fair. husband manages a flower shop, and there's a lot of death in the winter because of all kinds of reasons. But I would, so aside from the death, yeah. I would think that statistically, like January and February would be the death month because, you know, like you get through the holidays and then you're just exhausted. I'll look it up. I'll find out. Wait, let me find out. Give me a second. <laughs> the death months. I like that. What what months do we call the death months? What do you think it's going to be? We'll, we'll I think that. it's going to be January or February. Death. When do most people die, according to Kalia? Most <laughs> <laughs> Okay, the deadliest month in the U.S. is the one that heralds in the new year, January. An average oh, wow. of two. But why? Why? Hold on, I I don't know. An average of two hundred fifty-one thousand six hundred and ninety-nine people in the U.S. died in January every year between twenty ten and twenty twenty, according yeah, to Life Science. It says analysis. December, January, and February. Yeah, this has really turned dark. This whole conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, anyways, what else do you want to talk about? Okay, but it is September 1st. And as many people know, Band Book Month is September. Band Book Week is in 
October, but banned book month is in September. I don't know who makes the rules. That's fine. Whatever. So Chris and I really They probably want... died in January, whoever that was. Oh, my God. <laughs> Go ahead. So... I digress. <laughs> we wanted to talk about books this month because uh, there are a lot of things happening in our world regarding books and specifically banned books. So today's episode is not just going to be doom and gloom about what month you're going to die. We actually have two exciting interviews for you. The first interview is with George M. Johnson, who wrote the book, All Boys Aren't Blue. And you will hear Chris do a little intro and explain why we picked this book. And then the other interview that we have for you today is with a lawyer, and her name is Nadine Farid Johnson, and she is talking to us about the Pen America court case that is involving the banned books. There's a court case in Florida, and again, she will explain in that interview. So we're very excited to talk about these banned books and other such things. So we're going to go ahead and get started. We're going to have our interview right now with George M. Johnson, and when we come back, Chris and I will do our book review of the book. Here's our whooshing into our interview with George M. Johnson. Whoosh! Okay, so we are welcoming George M. Johnson today. George M. Johnson's first book, All Boys Aren't Blue, has been banned in 29 school districts, making it the second most banned book in the country. The book is a collection of coming-of-age essays describing Johnson's memories of growing up with particular focus on their Black queer identity. The essay center pivotal experiences, including affirming relationships with family members, their understanding of masculinity, sexual encounters, and experiences of sexual abuse. The book was selected by Yalsa's Teens, Top 10, and the ALA's Rainbow List and received a starred review from Kirkus. The Root included Johnson on their list of 100 most influential African Americans in 2020. As of November 2021, All Boys Aren't Blue was one of the most frequent targets of book bans and challenges amid an unprecedented period of book banning, according to ALA. It was removed from libraries in eight states due to claims of sexual obscenity or its descriptions of queer sex and masturbation. Welcome, George. <laughs> Thank you for having me. We're so happy to have you with us today. And Chris and I are really, really impressed with the book. And we noticed then when we looked at it, that it's called a memoir manifesto. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about what that is and what inspired you to write your story, not just as a memoir, but a memoir manifesto. Yeah, I mean, I think um, when we think about manifestos and we think about who was it? I think it was Martin Luther and what we learned as kids was like the 95, it was called the 95, um, you know, stamped to the door with all of these demands and, you know, um, that was kind of where my mind was when I was thinking about like, what is this really thing? Like, what is this book I am putting together? Uh, I felt it was a manifesto in many ways. I felt it was a call to action. I felt it was a declaration, breaking of the silence that many queer kids uh, feel and have felt and continue to feel. And I think we can also see that with all of the challenges and all of the laws and everything against us, book band wise, the LGBTQ laws, I think we can now see why I felt this book was going to be a manifesto um, because it pissed a lot of people off. And uh, because it was saying that we have the, the right to do more than just exist. I wrote this book because I, as a journalist, was still not feeling like teens had something that they could read where they could feel seen and feel heard. 
I remember what it was like growing up and having an identity issue and not having any access to any materials to tell me or help me process what it was I was feeling or what it was I was going through. And so I think the beautiful thing is that the people who read the book down, the teenagers um, and, you know, young adults, because I, I say, you know, only in America, in my opinion, do they think that 18 just magically makes you an adult and you're supposed to know everything that you're supposed to know. So I always like to say until 25, because <laughs> um, we like to stunt the growth of, of kids in this country. So I feel like readers up to 25 have found healing in the book. They found themselves in the book. And that's really all I was trying to do. I wanted to tell my story, but uh, I've learned that in telling my story, that my story heals others. And um, that's been the beautiful thing about the book. So, George, let me ask you this. Um, in your first chapter, you talk about how you daydream as a child, you daydreamed, and when you, in your daydreams, you were a girl, but you didn't actually feel like a girl in the gender sense of it. Yeah, like I, I mean, there are times I still daydream. Oh, yeah. Girl. <laughs> yeah, which I guess that's one of those things, right? And I guess. If uh, if I were to say that too many times out loud, they would try and say that I was uh, needed a psychologist, right? <laughs> well, you must have a mental illness because you're you, you should be thinking of yourself as only one way. But that's just not how my brain works. I oftentimes still see myself as me sometimes in daydreams. Sometimes I see myself as not me in daydreams. But I don't think, or when I think about like seeing myself as a girl, but not necessarily wanting to like transition. I think it was about. I think it was it was kind of telling me like signaling to me that. I could have this particular vision, but also exist in the same body I'm in, which again is why I, I, I do use they them pronouns and I do say I'm non-binary because I do not ascribe to gender realistically. I don't think about it. Like, and I think that's really the thing when people are like, people are so stuck on gender. It's like the people who aren't stuck are usually queer people. Like we don't really think about it. We just operate as what our spirit tells us that day to move and show up as. There are pictures of me in wigs. There are pictures of me with makeup. I wear heels. I've worn dresses. I wear skirts. I wear t-shirts. I wear suits. I really don't care. Like I don't, and I don't think about it. I just am like, oh, that's a cute outfit. And I put it on. I don't look at it like, that now the only time I have to think about gender is because I have to shop in the women's wear section because they don't just have clothes like you know everything is so gendered but yeah for me I think like just that that's pretty much how my processing works at times I think it was like me tapping into my effeminate side and especially as a kid the only way you know how to tap into it is just to see it as a girl thing because that's how we're taught it's like well no, no no that thing is for boys this thing is for girls you can't play with dolls you can't do this that's for girls so like that's really the only way that you could process for in my mind when i was feeling the effeminate feelings i had i was like well i don't want to be a girl but i like girl things so part of my imagination was where i got to be the girl that i didn't get to be in i guess real world so let me follow up on that because it sounds to me like you did the they them more as a rebellious act than an internalized idea of gender. You did it because you wanted to say to the world, look, gender is not important to me. Is that why you did it? So it's like two, two reasons I did it. One, I've already known who I was. I've been who I was. My parents been knew who I was. Everybody knew who I was. I think, I mean, and honestly, Looking back at it, I'm almost certain that there were probably points where my mom and dad were like, yeah, Matt, at some point is going to transition because I was that effeminate at times. Like I really was. And I grew up with a transgender cousin. So it wasn't like it was something that we hadn't seen before. And so I've always known who I was. 
whether I had to declare that to the world or not. The only reason that I was going, you know, when you think about it, like the only reason we go by he and him is because society forces us to. I have to have a moniker. <laughs> um, right. But I did it though, because it's important, especially with me being a public figure, to break space for the young adults who are very, very driven and very, very tied to their identity through their pronouns. I'm not, I'm a little bit older. So it's like, eh, whatever. Like, and I have to explain to people, like I'm in a fraternity, my brothers, they call me bro. I'm also in ballroom, I'm a garçon and they call me sis. And I have a child that calls me mother. I didn't have people who called me they and them. And so I get called all pronouns, they don't bother me. But it's important though, for the people, especially the young kids who are going through identity, that there is space being laid and groundwork being laid so that their matriculation into society is much easier when they get their first job and say, my pronouns are they, them. <laughs> that only happens if people like me start to make that the normalized thing. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, we wanna destroy gender altogether, right? People should just be right. people. We all human beings with some different genetics and some different body parts. Like if we could just get back to that, much better world. But instead you got people reading this based off of this and this because you got these body parts and I'm a man, I'm gonna punish you with these archaic laws and you know, and so I just wish we could just get back to 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 the original before the before language and before gendering. And I mean, you know, to be honest, gender uh, was never a construct meant for black people anyway. Talk about that. What does um, that mean? Yeah, uh, we were never seen as human. So if you're not even uh, seen as human, what does that mean that to, to be gendered, right? Because I can't be a gender and also not be a human. And so we were, we were seen as property. You can't gender property, right? So the construct of gender was never realistically meant for us because we were never seen um, as the same. That's why it was always different sets of feminist movements, right? When right. Susan B. Anthony fought for the right to women to vote, she said white women, not black women. But I thought you said they were women too. They never saw them as women. So gender was really never a construct built for us to be a, a part of its design. That is something that just happened much later. And again, if, even if you take it even a step back to you know Africa, we had multiple identities. We had multiple deities. We had multiple recognizings of being two, two gendered or three gendered or, you know, like there were other terminologies before colonization happened. And so colonization is really what started to gender us as black folks, especially in the United States, but we were never meant to be a part of the program. That's fascinating. I haven't heard it put that way before. <laughs> no, but it makes perfect sense because, you know, in a hierarchical system, people at the top have to have a way to differentiate themselves from the quote other. So whether it's other color or gender or anything, it's a tool that they use in terms of othering others. But yeah, no, I'd never heard it put that way. That's very interesting. That actually bridges right into our next question, which is about the banning of your book, because we were talking about how you're using your pronouns as a political way of paving the road for the next generation. Obviously, part of how people are growing up and learning about all these things about, you know, reading books, such as your book, and your book has been banned. As we said before, it's the second most banned book in the States right now. So how did that come about? Like, do you remember how you heard that your book was banned or being banned? Did, did somebody call you or you, you got Google alerts for yourself? Like, what was that 
experience like? And and how does it make you feel to know that about your book and that people hate it so much? And George, I wasn't clapping because your book is banned. I'm clapping because that's <laughs> quite an honor to have such a book it that is, is so yeah. uh, interesting to people and so fa- that they ban it. So yeah, that's what and- I meant. It's some people, some people be having attitudes that the people like people like me that we wear it as a badge of honor. They're like, you shouldn't see it as that. And I'm like, you don't get to tell me what I get to see it as. It <laughs> the banning. I first found out about it uh, on Twitter. So one of my followers added me and was like, hey, I don't know if you've seen this, George, but on Facebook, there is some man in Kansas City who is running for school board president and is using your book as basically their platform, like the banning of my book as their platform for why they need to be school board president. So I went on Facebook, I said something real shady to the man. And of course, a bunch of like my followers jumped in. And so he deleted the post. That was September of 2021. And so I thought, honestly, I thought that was going to be the end of it. I was like, oh, okay. That was like my first little ruffling of it. But just to be safe, I then set up my Google alerts because I was like, that was so random that in Kansas City, like I was like, that's just not one of the places where my book is like widely known and i was like how did this man know about my book so i was like all right i something's going on so i set up my google alerts and within weeks i started getting google alerts about my book being banned in like these very small rural counties that would never make the news and so once it got to eight counties that's when i made a post on twitter and i was like i don't know if y'all known but my book is now banned in eight different states and it went viral and people were like, wait, what? Like, what's going on, right? Then by that next week, that's when the criminal complaint got filed against All Boys Aren't Blue. What was the criminal complaint? Jill Woolbright <laughs> filed a criminal complaint against my book. A chief took my book to the sheriff's office under the pornography statute and dissemination of porn because it materials was in a to a minor. public library or a school library? Because it was in a school library. Okay. Wow. Um, the charges were dropped. She she also added, like amended the charge against me for cyberbullying, but I was like, whatever. Like once you, I mean, you just filed a charge against my book. Of course, <laughs> I'm going to get online and read you. Um, <laughs> but the charges were dropped. Then you know, DeSantis enacts the "Don't Say Gay" bill, which basically, which basically was the, the workaround to block all books because if our books mention identity, they can't be used anymore. So that was basically what their workaround was, was because they started losing cases. And she also ended up uh, being voted off the school board uh, last year. The students uh, led a revolt against her, so. All right. I tell you, Generation Z, man, they're going to do some cool stuff. (laughs) What was it in your book specifically that, do you know what they specifically were coming out against? Yeah, the the part where I described my first time having sex, I was about 20 years old and I described everything that happened. Like, this is what happened. I mean, I could have wrote it less, I don't know. Like, you could have told the truth or you could have lied. Right, yeah, exactly. I lied, right. It was like, I could have lied, but I, I didn't want to lie. And you know, I, I think the part that I find most interesting though is like, when they're going to these school board meetings and they're like, George uses the term like head for oral sex and this for that and da 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 da, and our kids shouldn't be learning that. And then it's like, I always challenge them like, okay, so you keep claiming you teaching it at home. So then what would be wrong with them reading it in a book if you were teaching it at home? Like, I, like what's the, well, that's my duty to teach it at home. Okay, but if you're teaching it at home, then they already know these words. So they already know these concepts and think what is wrong with them reading about it that's now? a good that's a good take on i like that at home, i don't like the correlation makes absolutely no sense 
and I can understand the whole well, like I, I, you know, I should have the right to determine when my kid learns about sex education. And it's like, well, that's hard because we have a president of the United States who's on TV every day and lost a rape case. So your kid probably needs to be educated quickly before the next election, because if right. they Google this man, it's going to come up, right? Like it, it's it's like living in an alternative universe because mind you, the same people banning my book are the same people voting for Donald Trump. Right. So I just, and who is now a, you know, has went to trial and been convicted of sexual abuse. It makes no sense how on one end of the spectrum, you are so against this grooming and this, and y'all are indoctrinating our kids with sex and we're now gonna go vote for a sexual predator. I have no, I, I, it's literally like, it makes no sense. But I'm yes. with you on that. That's the way I feel every day is how do you make this make sense in your head? And I don't think, you know, there's the very cynical part of me that says, you're not trying to make it make sense. You're just saying this to protect yourself in the public. You're really, you know you're lying. You know it's all BS. You're just trying to garner up some votes. Well, and then the whole I'll teach it at home thing is basically I want the right to not teach it so I can keep my children sheltered so that they don't know things. So then they don't ask questions. And then, of course, they're not going to think for themselves and they're not going to have autonomy and they're not going to be different than me and they're not going to rebel. That's the whole point. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're not teaching at home. Well, right. And I think the thing that doesn't make sense, especially is like you got certain people who will be like, oh, yeah, we got to ban these books, ban these books, ban these books. And it's like, but Lauren Boebert, weren't you 17 when you had a child and got married? And aren't you like a 34 year old <laughs> grandmother? Like maybe if you would have read some of these books, you would have made different life choices. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's what I think is like most mind boggling about it to me is this whole notion of, well, I don't want my child to see those things. It's like, yeah, but them not reading about it or not seeing it doesn't mean it's still not happening to them. They're still going to explore. They're still going to experiment. And the most glaring issue is because you all are trying to block sex education, the rate of rape and uh, sexual assault on college campuses is through the roof. And everybody, well, why can't we stop rape and sexual abuse on college campuses? Because you're sending a bunch of 18 year olds into the world with no sex education. They know right. nothing about consent. They know nothing about agency. And the only place that they are getting their views of sex is from porn, actual porn, because they can access that through their phone at any time they want. <laughs> Books are just trying to be there as a resource guide. It, it, and so, yeah, it's just a denial of, 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 of what's actually happening in the real world. And so that's why, like, fighting these book bans has been arduous. I am tired of being called a pedophile. But at the same time, it's like, you know, when you argue with a fool, it's hard to tell which person is the fool. So it's like, that's why I don't argue with these people. I just drag them and keep on moving and keep. And I can tell that I can tell just by talking to you that it's hard for you not to argue with them because it's impossible for me not to argue with them. And I get in trouble all the time. Let me ask you this. And if you don't want to share, and Kaylee is recognizing that, if you don't want to share, how old are you? Oh, um, 37. Okay. The reason I ask is because I think you said earlier you didn't have books that would have helped you when you were 10 years old, five years old, that related to the LGBTQ plus community. Is that right? You didn't have anything? Yeah, we, and I mean, you know, we had to read the American classics. So I went to high school from 99 to 2003. We really had to read, you know, Invisible Man, what was the Glass Menagerie, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Great Gatsby, like your typical, those, those, those books that everybody calls like the great American classic books, right? Um, 1984, like, you know, uh, and then as a 
in elementary school, you know, we were reading, like we did get to read the three Negro classics. So that was cool, like to be able to read about black people at least. Um, but other than that, we had to read, you know, the worst book ever written in the history of all time, Catcher in the Rye. Um, <laughs> like hold it I still, I still have not read that book, but now that I see your, what you said in Kaylee's reaction, I guess I'll read that book. I'm like this black kid. Y'all want me to feel some type of empathy towards this privileged white kid who's, it, and it's almost funny because like, it, I guess Catcher in the Rye is really like an allegory of what's happening now with these book fans. Like these parents almost, Holden Caulfield is who they have imagined their child to be. And this character now gets exposed to the real world for the first time in New York City over this weekend. And he sees all these things and poor people and this and that. And that, that's almost how they act. Like, and I see why they love that book because that book is their driving image of their kids who are so privileged and need to live in this safety bubble we don't want them to know homeless people exist we don't want them to know this you know it, it, it's 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 just wild and what are the the what are the three negro classics you mentioned what which books oh, are those? So those books are that's what they're called they're called the three Negro classics they sell them now together like as a almost like a set oh i see okay uh, souls of black folk they're like the autobiography of frederick Douglass. there's one more it's up from slavery by booker oh, t yes. johnson the Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Dubois, Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by James Weldon Johnson. James Weldon Johnson, excuse me, yes, okay. We got to read those, but yeah, we had no, I had no books. There were no books that had queer characters in them. There were no TV shows. I always tell everybody, the only show I can remember was a show called Spin City with Michael J. Fox, and they worked in the mayor's office in New York. The black guy was gay. Oh, okay. <laughs> I've never <laughs> heard that one referenced as a gay TV show, but that's interesting. Um, but yeah, like that's all I really had. And then, you know, sometimes we would, oh, and then like, you know, I would sneak watch Queer as Folk, you know, but even that didn't really relate to me, but it gave me something like to okay. be like, okay, there's something here that makes sense to me. It gave you lots of gay sex, that's for sure. It did. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's, and I also like, I always laugh too, like when I hear like these conversations around pornography and stuff and I'm like, Almost every teen I know, and this is regardless of uh, race or ethnicity, from my generation, used to sneak and watch real sex on HBO. We figured out ways to get the information anyway. Okay, I'll Google it. Like, it's just like, I right. don't know. Uh, it just porn is easily available for free to anyone in the world, and you tell, can't tell me that teens aren't looking at it. There's no way. Yes, there's no way. It's absolutely no way. So, yeah. Okay, so <laughs> I'm I'm not exactly sure how to transition away from porn into my next question, but I'm just going to go for it. According to my little bit of research here, you are involved in another lawsuit. You are one of the plaintiffs in the Penn America lawsuit in Florida. So can you speak to that a little bit? I'm not sure what the rules are. And obviously, we're not asking you to speak about something that you're not allowed to talk about. But if you could just give us a little bit of information, that would be great. Yeah, we filed suit um, in Escambia County. Uh, it was one of these counties in Florida that one person tried to ban. She was and she she was like a 60 something year old woman with no kids in the school system and they started removing our books and so now i thought that what i've been reading and i think i read about this woman but I, what i've been reading is in order to ask for a book to be removed from any school 
you have to be a parent with a child in that school system and she had none. Not true. And it's not true. People from outside the school systems have been have been getting our books banned. And we know that because literally when we were looking, they did some research. I think they said 90% of the books being that are currently banned in the country or being pulled in the country, 11 people are responsible. Oh my God. So it's not, it's not what everybody thinks. Everybody thinks it's all of these parents. It's really not. It's like 11 within this group the Moms for Liberty, who have strategically sent these lists out with the books that all have the exact same list on them. My book, they literally, they've tried to ban my book at libraries that didn't even carry the book. Um, <laughs> like, that's how we know it just was like, and they were arguing in libraries, like we don't have that title. Or they removed my book from libraries when my book has never been checked out. So it's like the students never even seen the material in the book. So what, what are you actually arguing about? The lawsuit in Florida, though, is about like the violation of the First Amendment and violation, I believe, of the 14th Amendment, discrimination over like our rights, because the books are just simply being moved because they're queer and they're black. Like, there is no other reason that they're removing these books. How many plaintiffs are there in that case? Well, we just added seven more parents and five more kids. I think total amount of plaintiffs, I think it's like 20... 26 of us, because several authors are uh, involved. Uh, like I said, we have parents, we have students, Pit America, uh, Penguin Random House as, as a publisher. So yeah, I think it's probably up to about 26 of us now. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about censorship as a whole, because obviously on, you know, at least on this call, the three of us are in the same place in terms of the fact that children and people, children specifically, should have access to all sorts of things, especially when it comes to um, things that have to do with representation and and a lived experience that isn't necessarily your own. You know, that's how we build empathy and whatnot. But I know that sometimes the line gets murky for people about what should and shouldn't be at elementary schools or a K through six versus a K through eight versus a high school versus a junior high, or et cetera. What do you think the target demographic age-wise is for your book? And do you think that there are places where it should or should not be? Also, do you consider it something that should be taught or just read as like independent reading, something available for people who are interested in the topics and the, the ideas that you have in the book? Well, the book is for 14 to 18 year olds. So that's so high school. I think the book has been found like on like a very rare occasion in like a K through eight, but you have eighth, eighth graders who are 14. <laughs> so that could happen because that's usually where they're trying to challenge us like look this book is available for a five-year-old it's like well a lot of these books in here your five-year-old can't read that talk about topics that are a little bit heavy <laughs> um but yeah 14 to 18 high school students do i think the book should be taught absolutely i think that it's important that people learn if i gotta sit here and learn about holding caulfield you should have to learn about me y'all should have to learn about what the hell i gotta go through to exist in this world too Amen. i'm just saying so yes, I do think the book should be taught and the book does have historical references in it. So I do talk about how history is taught very whitewashed and ahistorical in this country. So, you know, I talk about how even now, like we're indoctrinated, you'll hear people say, you know, they'll bring up Thomas Jefferson oftentimes like on the, I feel like it was, was that Hakeem Jeffries? I think like when McCarthy was losing, kept losing, kept losing, they had to keep making those speeches. I feel like he brought up Thomas Jefferson at one point. And I'm like, you a black man bringing up that rapist Thomas Jefferson as like trying to prove some point, the great Thomas Jefferson once said that he was a rapist. That's what I said in my book. Right. Because, because that's what, because if you could put this narrative out about this man, then we also need to put Sally Hemmings' story out too, right? Right, like, right. 
And so that's that's why my book is a teaching tool because it opens up the minds to to realize like, oh wow, some of these characters from history are a lot more nuanced than we have been taught. And maybe we should always take a second look at these historical figures or the people who have been pedestaled in this country to see what has been hidden from us. You know what I love about Thomas Jefferson? Because they, of course, Thomas Jefferson did some great things, but oftentimes people will go, well, he had slaves because everybody had slaves. I'm like, we're not talking about having slaves. We're talking about raping women. <laughs> I mean, you know, having I slaves. I mean, he didn't, that he had slaves was bad too, but I mean, right. he didn't just have slaves because it was the, and what everybody did back then. Yeah, exactly. He raped women, for God's sake. And I mean, even on top of that, when they say everybody was doing this, like, no, they weren't. There were right. there were free blacks in the North. No, everyone was not doing it. There was a constant, uh, it was a choice to be a slave owner and to be cruel and heinous to people. Like everyone actually wasn't doing it. And mm -hmm. so let's Right, not. but that's the argument they throw at us, you know? Yes, no, they always say that. Well, it was, a it was just a thing of the times. No, it was not. You created the times. No, it was right. not a thing of the damn times. Like- <laughs> I like you, George. <laughs> I saw that you did the audiobook of your book. You were the narrator. I don't really do audiobooks. Um, I they're just not really my thing. But I might actually listen to yours, uh, even though I've read your book because I really like your energy and your voice. What was it like to read your book for the audiobook? Was it difficult? Was it fun? Was it weird? I think it was all of those things. Like it was difficult at certain parts because there are difficult, certain parts of my book are difficult and a little heavy. It was fun at certain parts because I do joke in the book at times and I tell some, you know, stories that are funny uh, from my, about like, you know, growing up with my grandmother and my mom and everybody. And it was also like, well, it was a good way to proofread everything too, because as I was reading <laughs> the book, I was like, wait a minute. I think we missed something. Or like this is here. And they'll be like, oh, let's let the publisher know. So it was also it's also a very good way to, to do like a final proof of the book. And like you have to change words for audio because I'm talking to people. So like I forgot what which words it was, but like there were certain words that like in a book it makes sense written, but saying it over audio, it's like that wouldn't make sense because these people are listening. So oh like if I would say like as you read the as you read this or as da, 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 or as I write this, and it's like, but you're reciting it, so they're not actually yeah. But it was fun, yeah. You have any advice for aspiring writers? Yeah, I always say, you know, structure will come, just write, like just get the words on the page and like worry about the structure a little bit later. I'm working on a book on the Harlem Renaissance and I just kept, we just kept rewriting it until we figured it out. Like, I think we're probably on like our sixth or seventh round of edits, but we just couldn't, we had to figure it out. Like I didn't really know what I wanted it to be. And so I just wrote. And then we shaped it and then I wrote some more and we shaped it and I wrote some more. We just kept going back and forth and back and forth. And then I changed it to mixed media. And, and now it's, now it is what it is, but the structure came after the words came first. So I always tell everybody, you know, sometimes don't worry about the, the, the words so much as just making sure, or not worry about the structure so much as much as making sure that you just start to get the words down and out of your head. Yeah. Kaylee and I, we're, we're, we're both writers. Kaylee actually has a book published. And the thing about writing that I always tell people is writing is rewriting. Because yeah. you, you just demonstrated that, right? All writers want to do is rewrite. It's never a finished work for us. We always want to write, write, write. So the best advice is just sit down and write and don't worry about if that's a final draft because it's not going to be it's your not, final draft. Never. Yeah. Let me ask you, George, about where you think this is all going because clearly we're now in the midst of all kinds of censorship. They're literally trying to erase us as LGBTQ plus people. Where do you think this is going with the 
possibility that Orange Head is going to get back in office, God help us all. Where do you think the country is going? And why do you think that after all these decades of success in the gay rights movement, and I'm just going to say gay rights just to paraphrase it, why do you think now we are going backwards? Yeah, minority-majority mindset. There is a real visceral fear by white people, uh, right. specifically, that the country is going to be non more non-white than white. And it uh, is, and good thing, good thing. You're watching them use every tactic in the book to erase certain parts of people, right? And people may wonder, well, what is like, what, what would LGBTQ people have to do with that? It's like, right, well, if you erase, what you want to do is you want to force white queer people into the box of choosing their race over their identity. And so if you start to force them into the box and you force some of them enough, some of them are going to start to say, you know what, it's easier for me to just live silently as a white queer than publicly as a white queer, because at least I'll still have every right that white people have afforded me. And I still have a privilege that my whiteness affords me, right? So that's why you attack queerness. You're not really worried about Black queer people. You never were worried about Black queer people. But you want to re remove an identifier from white queer people just to make them back white people. <laughs> yeah, so, I think you're absolutely right because what they're doing, we've talked about this in June. We did a whole bunch of episodes interviewing drag performers about the laws that are going on in Tennessee and other places in the country. I really think that's the goal. I think the goal is to silence us because at some point they know a lot of us will just stop talking and stop fighting because it's there's too much at risk. And I, I certainly hope we don't do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's sad to see us regressing. But I will say, you know, it's very interesting. I think something interesting is going to happen around DeSantis. I just don't know when, but something, I don't know, something seems, I don't know, maybe, maybe my spirit thing is like, like something seems like it's going on. Like, I just don't see how much longer he survives as governor. Yeah. Like, I mean, like he is like literally, even the people who just recently voted for him, he is just like alienated so many of them. I, I just don't see like where he moves next, right? Like I, I'm, I'm almost shocked that he's going this route because it's almost as if it was like, one, we know you're not going to win the, the Republican nominee. So. Right. You're going to have to go back to being governor, but like, what are you going back to? You're going back to a state that can't stand you anymore. Yeah. And the other thing is, how has nobody found any shit on him? Because, I mean, anybody that dumb and that power hungry has got to have something in his closet. Please, somebody find something on this guy. That's where I'm at with it, too. And I'm like, or the whatever it is that they do have on him is what's making him move further and further. Right. Like, I, I just I don't. Because none of it makes sense. I think that's, I'm, I'm a pretty practical person. I mean, he didn't even believe his explanation of slavery having benefits. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You saw him, he said like, what did he say? You know, as they parlayed through, like he couldn't even, <laughs> like, because it was like, you can't even make it make sense to yourself at this point. Like a blacksmith, that was a benefit of, because we had like, like it was an internship. Like, well, what I what I read today was they mentioned, all, uh, and I haven't I delved deeper into it, but the article I read said they pointed out a lot of how a lot of black people benefited by learning a trade like blacksmith and this and that. And then the, the newspaper article I read said, okay, what they didn't see is that most of this benefit came after they were free from slavery, not while they were slaves. So they don't even do research on their own arguments. And the bigger issue is like, you learned a trade to then become underpaid labor. Right. Like, I, like, like they still had no rights. And to never like, be able to gain the generational wealth that white people have been able to have all these years. Yeah, It's like, so I'm a black person now with a trade 
and no rights. Because again, just because they got free didn't mean that they automatically got rights. And I think that's right. the point people keep missing. They were free with no rights. They still couldn't vote. They still couldn't, like, they still couldn't walk in certain places in public. Like, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's Yeah, what Kamala Harris said the other day, she goes, they tortured us. They right. literally tortured <laughs> us. And you're saying that was, that slavery was beneficial to us? Give me a break. I got to just say that I love it when Kamala and Joe get a little bit spicy and a little bit mad. I need more of that in my life for sure. I love to see it. Love to see it. It's funny too, because Joe Biden, you know, he gets on my nerves, but he is very, he is very good at counterpunching and one-liners and he's really good at And like, even some of us on Twitter be like, okay, he ate that. Like, it's like, I'm sorry, like. He really, he really ate that. I forgot one of them lines he did when he was walking out of a press conference right after Roe v. Wade was overturned. And whatever he said, I was like, oh, he really got that one good. Yeah, he does. He does do that. <laughs> okay, so I asked your advice for aspiring writers, and now I'm going to ask for your advice to LGBTQIA youth, especially to our queer youth that are living in places like the South. What would be your message to those youth, those kids out there right now? Yeah, it's hard, <laughs> it's, it's, it's hard. I used to be an LGBTQ youth and now, especially living in the South, it's become even more dangerous. But you know, I always have to remind them like to just re remember who you are in this. Remember that you exist. Remember that you have had legacy, you have history, you have people who are out here fighting for you every day to survive to do more than survive, but also thrive and to stay the course. I think it can be, it's, it, it can be hard, but I always want to remind them I have hard days too. Even being me, being me is hard. I get accosted in airports. <laughs> I get death threats. I get all this heat because I wrote a story about my life, but if my life can be that powerful, so can your life. And so you have to stay the course because had I not stayed the course, I would have never written all boys aren't blue had i not stayed the course i wouldn't be this person that i am today in this world and so i just want them to be reminded that i once was where they were but i stayed my course and if you stay the course great things can happen awesome awesome um our final thing really is can you tell the people where they can find you want to go ahead and drop your social media handles here for our listeners yeah, I am GM Johnson on Instagram. I am GM Johnson on Twitter as long as it survives. I am GM Johnson on Threads. I am GM Johnson on TikTok and George Matthew Johnson Garcon on Facebook. A lot of people still use Facebook. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and being willing to talk to us today. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, so that was a great interview with George, and I I just feel a, a real affinity with him because of what he said in the interview where he's a loudmouth and he sometimes tells people off online, which I can totally relate to. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about the book, All Boys Aren't Blue. So Kaylee and I have both read this book, and I was really, really touched by this book. And I'll, I'll grant you, I read this book after talking to George, but that didn't really phase the emotional impact of this book because – Everything George talks about, and George and I come from different backgrounds. I'm a privileged white guy, and he's a black guy that is not very privileged in this nation. Um, but he and I had the same kind of gay childhood experiences about knowing early on that we're, we're gay, 
that were different, basically, not even necessarily gay, but were different, and how dangerous it was for us to exhibit or exude our natural selves in, mm -hmm. in the world because we would be condemned for it. What's different about George's childhood and mine is that George's family was amazingly supportive. I mean, didn't you find it was amazing to read this book and how supportive his family was? Because he also had a trans cousin mm -hmm. and other gay people in his family, and they were completely supportive. What did you think of that? So I had two thoughts very quickly, uh, one right after the other. The first one, like you, I was like, wow, that's so surprising. And then my second thought was, wow, Kalia, how fucking racist are you that you assume that the Black community is not going to be open and supportive? Which like definitely took me aback. And I had to sit with that for a minute. But I, I do think that there is a perception that the black community is more religious and more conservative in certain areas. And so in my head, that naturally means, oh, well, they might not be as accepting. And I know it's a memoir and it's a gay black gay man talking about, you know, his 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 life. And usually when it's a gay memoir, it's not happy. Like there's right, sadness right. and trauma and, and there's definitely sadness and trauma here, but there's not usually a supportive family. So like the stories that we're told uh, they reaffirm that this is like very unique. And when we talk to him and he referenced his family and when he talks a lot about it in the book, it's not terribly unique. It's just not the stories that are really ever told. And so I am so grateful that we read this book and I'm so grateful that I have to have that little moment of epiphany of like, wow, check yourself, like don't assume. So here we are, people. Like I'm learning in real time and I'm not ashamed to put it out there. No, and we yeah. shouldn't be. We should be open to the fact that we are we have underlying prejudices that we don't necessarily recognize. And I don't mean that Kaylee and I are outwardly prejudiced, but we grew up in, obviously Kaylee is white and I'm white and we grew up in a certain society. Now that you say that, I don't know. And this is me analyzing myself in the moment. I don't know that I meant that I was surprised that his family was supportive because they were black, or if I was just surprised that they were supportive because I felt such a kinship with him and he's young, uh, slightly younger than I am. Mm -hmm. That's your cue, but you didn't take it. So he's, <laughs> so he's I was a little... say he's actually slightly younger than me too. Oh, so, okay. So you know. he's greatly younger than I am. But I mean, it felt, <laughs> even though there's a time shift between his time frame and my time frame of childhood, it felt so similar to me. But now that you say that, I'm thinking, did I think that it was unusual that he was that supported because it was a black family versus a white family. I don't know. I think I felt immensely jealous that he was yes. that supported uh, no. by his family. Even when they had a, he is, his trans cousin decided to change their name mm -hmm. and the family decided they argued for a minute, but then they decided, um, okay, we're going to call this child by their new name. That would never have happened in my family. Yeah. Um, maybe it is because I was born 15 well, years well, earlier. Yeah. So like the story itself and the 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 experiences felt in some ways familiar to me because I have a, a supportive family and I don't there's not a trans person in my family that I grew up with. There's there's trans people in my extended family now as an adult. But, you know, there were definitely gay people in my family. I have I have a whole slew of gay uncles, you, you know, yeah, I have I, uh, and so like it was already it was a known entity. And yeah, there was definitely conservative Christian values that were pressing up against it. But there also wasn't there was like kind of both sides. So some of those experiences 
felt very familiar to me, even though I'm obviously not a black queer man who grew up in, in the time period. So yeah, no, I, I'm glad, like I said, that I got to have my assumptions challenged and proved wrong. That was that was really good. And again, I think that it's important that we have memoirs that aren't just the doom and gloom. You know, there's definitely trauma here. He was assaulted as a child. There's definitely some sadness here. There was a death at one point that was very, there was a couple deaths, but one that was very, very tragic and moving. So it's not all roses and caviar over here, but it is a complex and very authentic story. And I think that sometimes you know, especially in, in pop culture for a long time, all gay stories were sad. And yeah. now we're getting a lot of like red, white, and royal blue, a lot of like gay rom-coms, which are fine. And that's good representation. But I don't know if we're, we're we haven't quite gotten the rest of it. You know what I mean? Right, we don't right. have villains who are villains who happen to be gay. We have gay villains. We don't have you know, contemporary stories that are just about regular people like having a sci-fi adventure. Oh, who happened to be gay right. because the gay is a really important part. And and some of those books are out there. Don't get me wrong. Please don't at me and, and send emails. I, I know that they exist. But in terms in of general. popular cultural, yeah, in general, this is a type of story that is not as widely spread. And I think that's probably why it is so controversial. I think this is my hot take. That if this book was sad, if his family was not supportive, and if more like if he'd gotten disowned and like kicked out, I don't think it would be challenged as much. Because oh. I think that the patriarchal bigots out there who hate this kind of stuff would be like, see, he got what he deserved. Oh. The end. This is your cautionary That's tale. That's interesting. But because he is joyful and unapologetically himself and had a loving family and subverts that expectation that a memoir is going to be sad and maybe that black families aren't supportive, et cetera, et cetera. This book is controversial. I think that's I think that's I think that's a fascinating take. And I think you're probably right. Um, so let's talk about why this is one of the most banned books in America. First of all, Kaylee and I have purchased the top 10 most banned books in America. And this one is probably at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. So why do we think this book, having read it, is so banned? Well, like I said, I think part of it is because it's happy. <laughs> part of it, and he is very frank about his sexual exploration, but he's not punished for sex, right? This is this is somebody who who joyfully has sex, who seeks out sex and and then engages in sex, learns from, you know, a not ideal sexual encounter. There, there's three, basically. There's an abusive thing, then there's a non-ideal, and then there's a joyful happy. And I think, I mean, from a narrative structure, that's just beautiful. And it, it you know, that's really important. But also, like, he's unequivocally interested in having sex. He's a sexual being. And we yeah. don't like you know, society yeah. as a whole is uncomfortable with that, especially young people, people in their teenagers and college age people exploring their sexuality, being joyful about it, not getting punished by, you know, or spanked because they had sex. You know, the concept of virginity is patriarchal and stupid. And this book, you know, celebrates the fact that he does, it's not a, a thing. He chose to put there's just a couple of chapters in here and it's toward the end of the book about his first sexual experiences and he chose to put that in because and i totally agree with him because it's important for young people to know what sex between two men is mm -hmm. how it's performed all of that now i now it is slightly graphic in the book i'll give you that but only slightly 
I mean, just I mean, barely. I was going to say your 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 mileage will vary here. I feel like it's probably very graphic for a fourteen year old who hasn't read Harlequin Romance. Yeah. But if you are a fourteen year old who you know, th- see, this is the other thing: fourteen year old girls sneaking the Harlequin Romance. There's sex. There's sex, and it is. Is there no... sex in those books? I thought it was just like, oh, oh my he God. looked her way, and she well, her bosom okay. sweat, her bosom swooned, and I mean, there's not. Oh, there's sex. Oh, no, no, no. No, there's a lot of sex. Okay. And it's always like the throbbing member and like, you know, all oh, of that oh, stuff. Okay. I mean, it's fairly graphic. But he I rented didn't... that movie once. So I just want you. <laughs> so, but we, 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 ta- you know, oh, that's taboo. That's bad. But also like, it's okay that girls know that because those books are, you know, they're very romantic and they're this. You know, so are gonna... those books banned in libraries or are they even in school those libraries? Are, those wouldn't be in school libraries because okay. they are grown up books. But I will tell you as a child, you can go into a public library. Here's the deal, you guys, at a public library. You pick up your books, you go up to the counter, you don't even have to talk to a person. You put them down on the little computer pad, you swipe your card, you put your books on the little pad, and then you pick up your books and you leave, okay? Nobody's checking what you're renting from the Mm -hmm. library. At the school library, not only are they age appropriate, but the librarian actually has to check them out. And there are checks and balances for a librarian to say, Hey, this might be a little bit beyond your reading level. Hey, did you know that this book is about World War II and it's really sad? And then the kid can be like, oh, that's okay. I like sad books. Or, oh, I've already read it. Or, blah, blah, or you know, oh, no, I don't think I want to read this. You know, so there are checks and balances at the school library. There are not in the public library. Which a lot of the protests against school libraries are pretty much putting out the idea that there are no checks and balances exactly. in libraries. Yeah. But teen girls can go into public libraries and get Stephen King and Julie Garwood and Jane Feather and, you know, uh, all of those books and read about the throbbing member, et cetera, et cetera. And somehow that's okay. The throbbing member part two was much better than the throbbing member part one, just video wise. But that's a whole other conversation. Well, I really liked the finale. I liked the way it ended. Sorry. Okay. Oh, yay, Kalia. Snap, snap. So, and your question is, why is this book banned? I think it's because it is an unapologetic queer black man talking about sex. Do you think that's part of it? I definitely do. And, you know, in our next interview, she talks about the two kind of buckets that books are in when they are challenged and banned. And the two buckets are books that deal with racism because they make people uncomfortable and books that deal with LGBT things because they make people uncomfortable. And this book does both. That's both, exactly. <laughs> so why don't you lead us into our next interview? Yes. Yeah, so let's go ahead and move into that interview. You're right. This was a great interview. She's going to introduce herself. Fascinating look at the pen case and um, censorship in general. So here we go. Swoosh, swoosh. Swoosh. We are really excited today to have Nadine Farid Johnson with us today. So Nadine, tell us who you are and what you do and how you're connected to this idea of censorship. Well, first of all, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm thrilled to be joining you. My name is Nadine Farid Johnson, and I'm the Managing Director for Washington and Free Expression Programs at PEN America. PEN America is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that stands at the intersection of literature and human rights to protect free expression in the U.S. and around the globe. And as you can imagine, 
what we've been doing in the U.S. has increased exponentially over the past few years, um, particularly in the last two years with respect to educational censorship, which is right in the crux of the book ban issue. Exactly. Now, I know that you can't speak to a, an ongoing trial situation, an ongoing litigation situation, but we also know because, you know, it's on Google that George M. Johnson's <laughs> book, the one that we just had our interview with, All Boys Aren't Blue, is part of that lawsuit. And this seems to be the trend right now of people coming into a school library and finding a book and saying, this is questionable. We need to just get rid of it. Can you speak to what that actually means in terms of the bans and the censorship of the libraries and what that process is? Sure, absolutely. So I'll give a little bit of background if that's okay, because I think it's important to set the stage about what it is we've been seeing and how much it has escalated over the past couple of years. So we've been collecting reports of these rapidly increasing restrictions on books and the freedom to read and learn in classrooms and in school libraries. And because we are an organization, as I mentioned, that is committed to defending free expression and open access to literature, and we've been doing it for over 100 years now, we really felt compelled to drill down and find out what was going on. So what we found out is that it's exactly what you're saying, Kelia. There is a really a trend here of an individual or a group of individuals coming in and saying, we saw this book on your shelves. We heard it might be on your shelves. Or we want you to find out if it is on your shelves. And if it is on your shelves, take it off of your shelves because we don't want that to be available to students in a library. And it's happening at all levels. It's elementary school, middle school, high school. And as you mentioned, George M. Johnson's book, All Boys Aren't Blue, is frequently at the top of this list of banned books that we're seeing all around the country, along with several others. But George's book is pretty much consistently at the top. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I read a statistic that said it's the second most challenged books in the United States. Like, of, yeah, which is crazy. It, it's just. And crazy. what do you think the reason is for that, Nadine? Why that particular book? Why is... that particular book? So it's a it's a great question, Chris. What we're seeing overall is that the types of books that are that tend to be challenged are in a couple of different categories. One of those categories is issues of race or racism, and the other is issues that have to do with LGBTQ plus identities or stories or experiences. And George's book falls in the latter category largely, and that's that's one of the reasons that we're seeing it banned. Now, what you'll hear from people who are seeking to remove these books from access is that they're just trying to stop the spread of inappropriate sexual content in schools. But of course, what they are doing in doing that is A, ignoring the very real experiences of, of different people in, in schools, B, ignoring the educators and librarians whose expertise is the reason that we have those, those books available, and C, ignoring the fact that what they might believe is right for their child, which is of course their prerogative, is not necessarily what's right for every single child. And so to impose that on an entire community is really where the censorship is coming in because you're seeing these school districts and school boards say, oh, we have a challenge. Let's just move all the books. Mm -hmm. Which is ironically what they're saying is that they don't want people imposing ideas on them and they're now trying to impose ideas on others. I have a question about how books, specifically in schools, how books are approved to be in those libraries to begin with. So in other words, we have these people complaining, why is this book in your library? And a lot of times we see the libraries react very quickly and just take the books out, even without having a challenge to it. What are the requirements or what are the guidelines that libraries use in schools to put books in the library in general, and in particular in certain sections ap applicable to certain ages, age groups in schools? It depends on, on the school district. But generally speaking, what you have is you have a 
trained librarian who is a professional and often has a graduate degree who is examining books that are that are provided to them oftentimes by publishers who also have indications on the books as to the general age or stage of recommend that's recommended for for the book and sometimes there are committees sometimes there are it's it's up to a particular picture librarian but we they do have guidance that is available to them and there are entire frameworks devoted to this now what we know is, of course, there are times when a librarian, for whatever reason, needs to go through and, and call different books. If there's a new edition of a book, maybe you don't want this the previous edition in the library. If there's something that they, they see hasn't been checked out, or whatever it might be, I mean, this, this is their professional opinion, then, then there is a, a routine kind of culling of books. That is not what's happening here. As, you're, as you've pointed out, Chris, what we see is there will be a complaint oftentimes, and what what should happen is there, if there is a challenge, the ALA actually has an entire process they recommend that is a best practice that there should be a review of the book, that the individuals um, individuals who challenge the book should have read the book, which is something that we're not always seeing happening. Imagine that. <laughs> Imagine that. And then the committee that is, there should be a committee that reviews the book and also reads the book. They should make them do a book report. Here's your five paragraph essay about what's wrong with this book and why that's wrong. I'm just saying. Right. Not written by ChatGPT, right? Actually have them right. do. <laughs> have there them will do also be a 10 point quiz on this book. You know, who are the main characters, the themes and the exciting plot points so that we know that you actually read it. That's the thing. We need Precisely. Testing. Precisely. And so there should be a process that is undertaken. What we saw um, actually in the, we, we are still doing the data for this past school year. I can share with you kind of what we saw in, in the first semester, but what we saw in the last full school year, the 2021-2022 school year, is that over 90% of the books that had been removed did not undergo a process such as that that was recommended by the ALA. So we don't have here this kind of considered review and analysis. It is a reactive undertaking. Yeah. And you know, what's completely and utterly astonishing and ironic about this is that the people that are complaining the books, pro complaining about the books, probably likely have not read them or reviewed them or analyzed them. And then the libraries who are automatically pulling the books have not read them or reviewed them or analyzed them. It's kind of like two magnets on the opposite side going against each other. Neither one is doing the due diligence to find out is this as the parents, if they are parents complaining, is this book appropriate for children? And the library, I feel like we live in such a fearful society right now that they are being intimidated into removing books before they even analyze them and, and do a review. I think the, the fear and the intimidation is exactly what we need to pinpoint here because what this does is it creates this culture where librarians, school librarians, educators, others who are involved in the teaching of, of children in schools feel like they have to self-censor self and or they have to be reactive in order to avoid somehow running afoul of a new process, a new principle. Sometimes it's a new, it's a new legislation, as we've seen in many of these states. So it is leading to this, this incredible chilling effect that we're seeing all across the country. Is is it fair to, to conclude from that, that since often the parents or whoever who is complaining are not reviewing the books and the libraries are reacting to intimidation and not doing the due diligence. Is it fair to conclude from that that this is not about the books at all, but about something else? 
It's a great question. I think it's important to look at this in the context of what else we have seen at PEN America, which is that book banning and book removal is not the only, that's not the only area of censorship we're seeing in the educational sphere. We're seeing educational gag orders whereby there are strictures on what one can teach in a classroom. One may not teach CRT, for example, in that insofar as that label is being used, right? One may not teach about gender in certain at certain ages, that, that kind of thing. And so we are seeing a true movement in the, in the way that there is a an effort to curtail and to prescribe what can be taught in our schools, what students are permitted to read. And those bills are actually now even growing. And we actually now have an entire body of work that we call the education intimidation bills, where it's, we're going to have the parents come and they have to be able to read a syllabus and approve of a curriculum before it's taught. We're going to have teachers have to be able to quote unquote, out a student if they believe that that student might have an identity that is LGBTQ, for example. It is truly a, a really chilling and and disconcerting effort to, to curb this what's happening all over schools. Yeah, it feels very dystopian, you know, to yeah. say all of all of what you're saying, especially the idea that the parents are going to determine the curriculum. I mean, that they didn't go to school. They're not teachers. They're not. You know, that's very frustrating. But I want to go back to something you said earlier about three different things about these books. You talked about that the books in the schools deal with representation because there's a population in the student body who is LGBTQ or Black or Asian or from a foster family or autistic, and they deserve to be represented in the books that are on the, on the shelves. So that is a definitely a big component. And then you talked about the morality, like the parents' morality. This one parent says that I don't agree with this message, so the children shouldn't have it, but that's putting your morality on other people's children. But there's another part too, and that's the librarians themselves who are trained to understand the age and stage of the books. And so this is something that people like the fear mongering says in a K through eight school, a kindergartner can walk in and check out a book that's geared for an eighth grade and has sex in it and violence and blah, blah, blah. And people are forgetting that there are librarians there who will say, this isn't quite the book for you. This isn't at your stage. You should maybe let's like point you towards this section over here. And of those three things that we have to combat and deal with, where do we have the capacity to use the legal system to help us out? Because we can't really legislate morality and obviously saying that the other people can't legislate morality, it doesn't seem to be working. Representation doesn't seem to be, you know, but I think that that's actually the pen case, right? Is that the equal protection, was it that? The, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, that's the, can you, can you speak to that and, and like how it, how, where, where's our recourse in those three sections? So I really appreciate that you, that you, how you broke that up and, and, and asked this. When we decided to file suit, PEN America is, is, as you know, the lead plaintiff on a case in Escambia County, Florida. It is in federal court. And we were joined as plaintiffs by five authors, including George M. Johnson, by Penguin Random House, which is the largest publisher in the U.S., and by several families, parents who are suing on behalf of themselves and on behalf of their minor children who are students in the school district. And our case focuses on the constitutional rights at issue. And I think that's where we have to turn. We have to look at the foundational rights that are at stake here. We talk about viewpoint discrimination in terms of the First Amendment. We talk about the right to receive information in terms of the First Amendment. And we talk about the 14th Amendment, as you know, which is an equal protection claim. 
looking at the identities and the in the content content and what's been constantly being removed and that's really where the the crux of of the of the issue is now there have been a number of lawsuits that have been brought around the country looking at different legislative acts that have that have been passed looking at other issues in, in other states but in this case we decided to focus on on the constitution has similar strategies worked on similar cases in the past, or is this case like one of the early first of its kind in terms of, of book banning and these specific where there's parents and authors and a publishing house all involved? To our knowledge, the, the group of plaintiffs that we have, this kind of representation is the first of its kind, at least in, in this current swath of book banning. I think it's also interesting to think about the fact that this country has had several waves of book banning over the course of its history. You know, we've we've seen this, obviously, in the McCarthy era, in the Jim Crow era. In the 1970s and early 1980s, there was another kind of ban that actually stemmed from a similar type of situation in which there was a group of parents that went to a, a school board representative and demanded that a certain, it was a 10 book, there were 10 books at the time, that these 10 books be removed. And the school board ended up removing some of them despite actually going through a process. And the process, at the culmination of the process, they said, oh, we should keep these books. They pulled them anyway. And that actually, that case went up to the Supreme Court and did talk about the fact that the school library is is a place in which there should be a fostering of, of ideas and that removals of books cannot be done in an ad hoc fashion. So there is precedent there. There have been cases in the past. And I think that what gives me hope in all of this, it is the fact that despite despite this, these couple of years of, of really troubling acts on the part of government censoring all around the country, every time this has happened, the First Amendment has won out. That's what we kind of have to hold on to. That and the fact that you have people like these, these authors, these parents, these kids who are standing up and saying, not in our name. Right. Right. I saw today a, a news story about Arkansas, how there are courses in schools that have decided to move forward with Black history education. And now they have been ordered, I don't know if it was by the governor or just the government in general, to submit their courses to see if they are approved for teaching in school. Now, you know, Kaylee and I, as LGBTQ people, we've dealt with all of this prejudice our whole lives. And I think we're not, we're, we are appalled by it, but we're not surprised by it. But the, the fact that they're trying to ban Black history teaching in colleges, that is such a, a, mu such a much deeper affront to America. It's hard to even imagine. It really is. And I think it's emblematic of what we're seeing here, this, this kind of fever that has captured a, a significant swath of the country. And when you think about it, when you say, we have the government coming in and saying what we can and cannot do. Exactly. That should give anyone pause, irrespective of where they land the political spectrum, irrespective of what they think about a particular course or book or, or what have you. When we have that kind of level of involvement from government, that should give everyone pause. For sure. Let me ask you, Nadine, we're facing a, an issue right now in Clovis, which is a sister city of Fresno. It's right on the edge. This book, It's Perfectly Normal by Roby Harris and Michael Emberley. Do you know this book? Yes, I know of it. I know it has been banned 
um, in quite a few districts around the country. So that was my first question. Has it been banned across the country? Because we have in the Clovis City Council, they are standing up against this book and trying to promote. They're saying they're not trying to ban books, but they're trying to question if it's appropriate for the le- levels of school children that it's directed to. And not at a school. They want it removed from the public, public county library. library. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Audience, you can't see, but her eyebrows went up the same way my <laughs> eyebrows went up when I when I realized that that's what Diane Pierce was trying to do, was remove. Yeah, let's mention her, Diane Pierce of the Clovis City Council. She's the one trying to do this. Yeah. Well, and I think that's exactly, again, it is it is demonstrating how much this has caught hold and and we've gone from school libraries, we've, went, we've gone from school classrooms to school libraries to now public libraries. And um, at one point in Virginia, this case has since been, this has, it, it did not succeed. But at one point, there was a lawsuit seeking to have particular books not be sold at a Barnes and Noble. I mean, uh-huh. so this is, it, it really, and that was, it was shot down. But the point is that the effort was made and mm-hmm. the argument was made. The other thing I, I think it's important. You know, we talking we're talking about the the different categories here about the different students and and that kind of thing. I think it's also really important to recognize that one of the things that we I can't really have to say this, but I feel like I do that we have to learn from one another, even if we don't share a particular identity or experience. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine <laughs> that, Nadine. <laughs> and we have to learn from our history. And if we don't yeah. teach it, we are bound to repeat it. I mean, this is this is not. But these are uh, things in our past that were common language. These are things that we would just say in America in general. We have to learn from each other. We have to be diverse. We have to respect everybody. And now we're going away from all those things. Well, it's interesting. When I was in high school, I remember that there was this huge push to change. I don't know if you remember this, Chris, because you're so much older than I am. Uh, there it is. There's <laughs> the age comment right there. Go ahead with your comment. Every every episode. Yeah. Just go ahead. There was a big push to say America is not a melting pot because a melting pot in, implies like a stew. And when you put a bunch of ingredients in a soup or a stew, that they all basically lose their individual flavors and become something new. And that's not fair to all the many cultures that make up America. Instead, said my teacher with a total straight face, America is a tossed salad. Oh my. <laughs> because everything in the salad maintains its own original it's thing. Integrity, the, the, yeah. to, the tomatoes and the you know, cabbage and the garbanzo beans and the cucumbers, they're all unique. What the hell school did you go to? (laughs) Anyways, I, I mean, yes. Okay. It's a little kooky, but that, that idea though, that we're trying to be together, but still maintain our individuality, I feel has very much been lost. And I don't feel like that is the thing we get. We're now much more into tribalism and this side versus that side. And they're no longer my political opponent. It's my enemy. And like, so all of that has changed. And I think what you said before about fear and intimidation is literally what it is. Chris and I were just talking about how even allies are afraid to wave the rainbow flag nowadays because, you know, you can get shot for having oh the goodness, rainbow flag. Yes. Yeah. So we just it, had a woman murdered in California, yes, yes. in California, where we always Horrifying. think it's so safe in California and, and it's not. So I do think that like cases like this one are really important to watch and and to you know, see how it goes. And and my goodness, you're doing good work over there for sure. Yeah. Nadine, can you tell us what PEN stands for? Does it, is it an act? Is it an acronym? It, it used to be an acronym. It used to be Poets, Essayists, and Novelists. Okay. 
And as I mentioned, we're we're now we're in our 101st year. So um, that since has been now in just kind of morphed into Penn. But we are one of over a hundred Penn centers around the world. We're part of the Penn International Network. And so this is entire this is an entire fantastic network of organizations working all these different countries to protect and defend the right to free expression and to defend writers in particular. Which imagine that you you it came to the the point where America becomes the real battleground instead of other countries in the world. That's stunning. It is. It is stunning. Let me add, I had one more question for you, Nadine. So because of all this fervor about going after censoring and banning, particularly LGBTQ books and books uh, on on ethnicities, there was a suggestion I read recently where, because I, I was told or I read that in order for these books to be banned in school libraries, it had to come from a parent who had a child in the school. It had to be somebody invested for them to have standing, so to speak, to do this. But then I've also read that there are people asking for these, uh, somebody who's very famous, I can't remember the name now, in America who's responsible for lots of bannings, who is not a parent in these schools. So do you know the facts of who can challenge the school to certain books? And what do you think about the opposite argument of, well, then maybe we should start asking the schools if they have the Bible in the library to ban the Bible because it's full of pornography and and cursing and all the things they are so afraid of. All right, I'll take those in two parts. Okay. <laughs> first, the first, I will say we have not necessarily seen that the individuals who are seeking to challenge these books and their use in the schools are are parents of students in the community, and not not by a long shot. And in fact. In Escambia County, where we filed our lawsuit, the the main individual challenging does not have students in the school district, to our knowledge. Mm. In terms of the banning of the Bible, that actually has been floated in more than one jurisdiction, and it really is, honestly, it's 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 unfortunately it's it's a step that one would see, one can imagine is going to happen after seeing all of this, right? That you're going you're going to see that kind of that kind of pushback, and the thing is. Whether this is coming from any any side of the spectrum, from Pen America is here to support free expression, and if in our in our view, the answer is not bans, it's not legislating removal of information. It is discourse, right? It is let's learn about what's happening, let's talk to one another, let's share experiences, let's, let's figure things out together, and to do that in a setting such as a school library where you have someone who is trained to conduct those conversations and have that engagement and be able to help steer the kids into something that is that is right for that particular kid, right? And again, I think it's really important to say that we hear a lot about this, that this is about parents' rights. And I want to say very clearly that parents do have rights in terms of their kids' education. But again, Having a particular interest in what your child is learning and understanding is one thing. Imposing that on an entire community community and using the government to do so is something else entirely. Right, right. Yeah, I think that's a really good, really good distinction that you just made there. I love what you said because uh, I have my own personal issues with the Bible, but I would never suggest banning the Bible. In fact, I would be what I assume, how I assume Penn would be, which is to not try and censor the Bible. Um, and to support that just as rigorously as you're supporting these other books. Exactly right. Right. So how can people find out more about Penn and the work that you guys do? It's Penn.org. Penn.org. Penn.org, yes. yeah. And you can see 
all of the work that we do, we are we are steeped not only in what's happening in education censorship around this country, but we work on other areas of domestic policy. We have an, an entire effort devoted to helping writers at risk abroad. We work in tech policy. We are we're a big tent organization, and we would love for you to log on to the website, become a member, see what we're all about. And you're a 501c3 on top of it, right? We are, yes. Okay. That's awesome. That's wonderful. So what could a lay person, a just a random person here in Fresno or out there in Kerman, I see you Kerman listeners, somebody up in Stockton. Hey, there's like four people who listen to the show in Ohio. So what can these <laughs> people what can these people do to support your work and to support the authors like George M. Johnson who are are going through all this and being victimized in this way? I think the best thing to do is to be informed and to get engaged. Right. Some of these things are happening, so many of these things are happening right at the community level. Where it's happening at school board meetings, that's it's happening, you know, right down the street from people. It's in every single community. So when I think about what people need to do, it's really they need to be aware of what's happening. And Penn has all those materials. If you're if you are a librarian, if you are a teacher, we have information about how to protect yourself as well as um, get involved. We have support for authors. We have support for anybody who's interested in in learning more and helping out. Our website has all those materials and we're more than happy to welcome you. Wonderful. Well, Nadine, thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time and maybe we can circle back with you in a couple of months when this trial has ended. And um, yeah, because I don't think any of this is going away soon. I don't think it is either. Unfortunately, I would be absolutely delighted to join you again. Thank Yay. you. Yay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you again to Nadine. That was a really great interview and we learned a lot. I really liked and we talked about it. I won't reiterate because y'all just listened to it. But the the three tenets of the important reasons why we have to fight these things is because that representation matters. So kids need to see themselves in books and that the librarians are professionals. We need to remember that these are professional people who are there to help shepherd the children and make sure they're reading age appropriate books. And these books have all been vetted. They've all they're there for a reason. Right. You know, I think it's important to know that this isn't like big publishing houses trying to make money, you know, sending out books to to libraries because he 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 this is not the pharmaceutical companies these are not Ooh. people going to doctor's <laughs> offices and being like have a fancy pen have a fancy sushi dinner and here's a special med you should reference to you know try to get all your right. patients no no these that's not what's these happening books just here. don't appear in the library there's <laughs> right. a process and there's a process that, you know so that's important and then we we talked about it and i think it's really important and we're saying again that my morality shouldn't dictate your morality so what i think my kid can and can't read or should or shouldn't read is up to me and my kid but i cannot i should not be able to tell you what your kid should or shouldn't have access to in a in a library system which makes all. this argument so fucking fascinating to me because their argument is we don't want you dictating or promoting your mm -hmm. queer lifestyle onto us and what they're doing is trying to promote their lifestyle onto everybody else so that they're they're fighting against the very thing that they're doing which is so apparent in all right-wing and conservative arguments right now they're saying that the democrats or the liberals or the queer community or whoever are doing certain things when actually they're the ones doing it oh yeah there's a whole thing on threads i don't know if you guys are on threads yet but you know we are what well, yes we officially are i keep almost every day 
on threads, somebody posts a mugshot of some man who has been arrested for inappropriate touching or sexual assault on a minor or taking a child and, and child rape and all that. Da, 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 da. And, you know, and half the time they're religious people and a hundred percent of the time they are not drag queens or gay. Right. Right. So, and it's become a thing, not a drag queen, still not a drag queen, not trans, still not trans. It's yeah. like a hashtag at this point. They don't know mostly straight white threads, men. But... And I, I, I want to promote another website besides threads. Um, I look every day at several news sites, but one of them is Joe, my J O E M Y G O D.com. He posts, news stories from around the world and he has a real passion for posting generally religious people preachers etc that are caught for for um, pedophile activity you will not believe just go on visit this site every day for a week you will not believe how many cases there are out there yeah it's 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 gross and you know they they often say that that the republicans are pointing and screaming about these boogeymen, and it's actually the things that they're doing. Exactly, so it's very internal. It's it's a lot of projection out. Projection. They assume that we're as evil and gross as they are because right. they're evil and gross. So, <laughs> so today I saw a story. This is mm-hmm. uh, this is related to book bans. A group of Muslim and Christian parents in Maryland asked a federal judge to block the Montgomery County School District, the state's largest school system, from requiring students to read books by and about LGBTQ plus people. Just us in general. Nothing specific about this book crosses the line of of what you should being too explicit. Just us in general. They claim in their lawsuit that having their children learn about queer things without the option to opt out violates parents' religious rights. What's interesting about this is the judge is leaning toward and has denied their claims. The judge has said he's skeptical of the argument that a supplementary curriculum would limit parents' ability to pass on their faith to their children. Quote, if you're a parent, you can still espouse your religious views, Judge Deborah Boardman says. So these people are wanting, and this is what we've been talking about for a long time now, they're not wanting to ban things that because they're definitely explicit in the sexual realm they are wanting to ban us as people this is what they're doing they're saying they don't feel that as religious parents they should have obligation to or they they should not be able they should not be granting permission for the schools to teach their kids about our community just our community in general not mm-hmm. about how we have sex people keep forgetting the same way that lgbtq plus people are not just about sex is the same way that straight people are not just about sex. Sex is part of your life and it does not define who you are. It does not define who we are. We have relationships. We pay our taxes. We have jobs, et cetera. We are real people. Yeah. Yeah. The ALA has found that police reports have been filed against library staff at least 27 times as part of this whole Dearborn. Yeah. Librarians are literally quitting their jobs because they're afraid for their lives because they get threats from people. Yep. It's educational intimidation because, you know, if you control what the kids learn, if you take out CRT, if you take out reality. You take out the history of the black people in this in this country. Right. Exactly. If you tell kids that slavery was fun and good for people. Or that it had benefits, like Ron DeSantis keeps saying, there were beneficial aspects of slavery. Give me a fucking break. So um, knowledge is power, people. There's mm-hmm. there's no reason that kids should not be reading books and uh, ingesting knowledge because it makes them better people. It makes us all better people. And that's been proven. 
Right. And and another thing is, I think that it's important for straight kids to read these books too, because one of the things that reading does, especially reading fiction, and this is why we have children at as early as first and second grade start reading fiction books in class, right? It is to understand empathy and or to to encourage empathy and for children to learn empathy in a different way because if you are a white middle class protestant who lives in a big city it is hard for you to understand somebody who is poor uh, a person of color in rural michigan for example you know and and forget uh, add that into what about somebody who was born a hundred years ago, 200 years ago, a thousand years ago, um, lives are very different and people have different experiences and fiction allows us a little glimpse into these other worlds and gives us characters that we root for and that we love and that we are excited about. And that teaches us empathy so that as we grow up and we're surrounded by people who are not the same as us, we can say, oh, I understand at least a little bit, or I can sympathize at least a little bit. I have a general context that we're not all the same cookie cutter person. So empathy is really important. And I think that one of the reasons why they want to get rid of LGBT books is because they don't want, they don't want queer people. We know that, but they don't want the next generation of straight people to sympathize and empathize with the queer people. Exactly. And that's fucked up. So, yeah. And, 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 you know, I grew up, we all did watching straight movies, reading straight books, straight television, and I never found that to be damaging in my relationship with straight people. I cry when there's a straight couple in a movie that I'm watching who are going through uh, a romantic relationship and are making up and they're kissing and I cry and I tear up and I do all of that. I have all these emotions. What is wrong with straight people having watching a gay movie and having the same reaction? We need to mm-hmm. be empathetic to each other and realize that we're all the same. Yep, exactly. It goes both ways for sure. All right, everybody. So as I mentioned before, the top 10 banned books in the country uh, were purchased by myself and Kalia so that we can read them and we can review them and talk about them. And we encourage you to do the same thing. We've posted a picture of these on our Facebook page. It's a queer thing, T-H-A-N-G. You can find us on Facebook. Look at the titles. Look at the authors. If you can, read some of these or at least look at what they're about because we're going to be talking about them in the near future. What I would strongly encourage you to do is, and we'll definitely have this on threads and Instagram too, is see how many of these are available at your local library. Because I know yeah. we have listeners here in Fresno, but I know we have listeners out in Fresno County outside in places like Kingsburg. And I know we have listeners in Ohio, and I know we have listeners all over the states. So I would love to hear from you, especially you who are not here in Fresno. Are all 10 of these books available at your public library? How many copies? Do they have one copy and so their waiting list is 35 people long? Or do they have five copies and your waiting list is only like five? Or is there a waiting list at all? I'm I'm fascinated to know. So yes, we're going to be reading these books. We're going to be talking about them. I already had read a few of these before the list uh, that Chris posted. Oh, you're cheating. I have only read one. Really? I've well, read... I read, the, I read Boy, uh, All Boys Aren't Blue, yeah. uh, but I haven't read any of these others. So there's All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. There's The Kite Runner by Khalid Hassini. I've read that one. Uh, Looking for Alaska by John Green. Read that one. The Hate You Give by read Angie Thomas. All right, that's enough out of you. <laughs> there's Gender Queer by Maya Kobabe. There's Out of Darkness by Ashley Hope Perez. The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. Read that one. 
I was waiting for that. Um, <laughs> this book is Gay by Juno Dawson. Uh, the Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexi. Me and Earl and the Dying Girl by Jesse Andrews. Long Boy by Jonathan Evison. And Beyond Magenta, Transgender Teens Speak Out, uh, written and photographed by Susan Kuklin. So we are excited to read these and talk about them. And, and maybe donate these to a library after we're done so that yeah. they have they, other people can read these. For sure, for sure. So if you have read these books or you're going to want to pick one to read along with us and you want to email us your thoughts and feelings, we would love to hear your general thoughts and feelings. We would love to hear if you think that these books should be in public libraries. And we would love to hear if you think these books should be in school libraries at like maybe the high school level, because a few of them definitely are. And I think that that's important and good. So that about sums up this episode. That seems like a, a natural place to call it. Again, you can find us on threads, on Instagram, on Facebook. You can email us at it's a queer thing, T-H-A-N-G at gmail.com. And please like us, review us, share us with your friends. Check out some of these books. We'd love to hear from you if you have read these books and what you what you think about. And there is a lot more coming up before the end of the year, people. We're going to be talking about all kinds of events in Fresno. And we're going to actually have a Spotify playlist that we are going to promote for you guys. So stay tuned. Yay! Hold on, my robot is talking to me. Alexa, stop. I don't know why she started talking to me. That was You so should weird. say that in your Alexa voice. Alexa, please do not make noise. Oh god, that's so freaky when you do that. Now she's talking again. Thank you. Mm. Alexa, stop. It's not how I talk to mine. <laughs> <laughs> she and I fight every day. <laughs>